Hello to our listeners. Welcome to the Women Governance Trailblazers podcast, where we listen to the journeys of trailblazing women in the corporate governance field, their passions, struggles, and commitment to improving how companies and boards function. My name is Courtney Camlet, and my co-host is Liz Dunchy. Hi, everyone. Liz and I are both super passionate about governance, and we want to spotlight some of the amazing women who share that passion. We're connecting with guests from different paths and industries to hear their perspectives on what surprised them in their career and where they think the field of corporate governance is going. For this episode, we're talking with Kelly Malafis, who is a founding partner at Compensation Advisory Partners. In her role, she focuses on compensation strategy development, evaluating the pay and performance relationship for senior executives and compensation program governance, among other areas. Welcome, Kelly. Good afternoon. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Courtney and Liz, for inviting me. We're excited to have you. Yes, definitely. I was going to say it's our pleasure. So thank you so much, Kelly, for being here. And to start off, we'd love to hear what inspired you to co-found Compensation Advisory Partners 14 years ago. And also taking a step back, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in executive compensation since you took that leap back in 2009? Yeah, and around that time in, in 2009, um, the issue of consultant independence was perceived um, as something of, of, a, of a conflict. And so it was a natural time um, to think about becoming an independent firm. And I was lucky enough to be working with uh, other consultants who I had been with for many, many years who shared very similar values. Uh, similar objectives. And so it just seemed like the right time to to form our own firm. And what's interesting about um, that time as well is that it was right after the financial crisis and right around the time that the Dodd-Frank Act was passed. And for those of you who are familiar with that, there was a a big impact on corporate governance uh, around executive compensation. And so some of the biggest changes occurred during that time And a lot of the practices that we see today came out of Dodd-Frank because of the say on pay vote. So a lot of companies and boards are very focused on pay for performance relationships, stock ownership guidelines, limited contracts, limited perquisites. So all of that um, increased focus on governance really came out of that time. Uh, And there's still rulemaking that's coming from the Dodd-Frank era that's uh, being implemented today too. Yeah, absolutely. It it seems um, crazy that, you know, 10 plus years later, we're we're now implementing the pay for performance disclosures and thinking about what what the clawback policies will look like for for public companies. So it is it's amazing how it's um, really evolved and continues to be part of the conversation. Yeah, and due in large part to your work and and the work of others like you, there's been a lot of progress during that time, even though the rules haven't been finalized. So, you know, we're at a new stage now, but it's not to say that there haven't been big leaps forward during the past decade. In the spirit of evolution, you have over 25 years of executive compensation consulting experience working with compensation committees and senior management teams. What are the biggest changes you've seen during that time from the board side and also from the company side? Yeah, absolutely. I would say over my career, the level of independence of compensation committees has continued to grow. On the board side, we see a lot more engagement, a lot more proactivity. And and most recently, 
we've seen that come from board refreshment. Uh, a lot of uh, institutional investors are pushing for board refreshment and board diversity, which naturally, if you don't have a diverse board, you will have refreshment as you bring on new members. And whenever a new member joins a compensation committee, it's always very interesting to me because they, they ask a lot of questions to get up to speed and educate themselves on the policies and practices that a company has. And it really um, forces the management and the board members that have been on the board for a while to stop and think, yeah, you know, why do, we, why do we do it this way? And does it still make sense? So it really elevates the conversation when you have new board members, fresh thinking coming in. And I, I think that, that management has also changed in their role and that there's a lot more collaboration and transparency around what they're looking to accomplish and what's the best way to get there. So that combination has really, I, I believe, led to better outcomes for the, both the board and the management. That's a great point about why refreshment is so important. Just to bring in the new thought leadership and, and questioning why you've done something, because just because you've done it a certain way doesn't mean it should always be done that way. Right. You kind of forget and you say, yeah, why, why do we do it that way? And you might not necessarily change it, but it either reinforces what you were doing or makes you take a pause and, and rethink it. Yeah. And do you find that those types of conversations happen not just with directors who are entirely new to the board, but also does that happen when there are changes just in the committee membership, if the company is kind of reconstituting the committees? Absolutely. When someone is new to a committee, um, that they're not, they might get some information at the full board readout on what the comp committee is doing, but they don't necessarily have the details. But also, as, as I mentioned earlier, the level of engagement generally is a lot higher from board members. And so there's a lot more bringing in what they see externally and elevating the conversation that way, saying this is, you know, we just went through this either at my company or on another board. And, are, you know, do we have our eye on this issue, right? So I think, I think it's that combination of proactivity and refreshment that's really supporting having more discussion. Yeah, that makes sense. We kind of alluded to new rulemaking and, and turning to um, what you foresee in the future if you look into your crystal ball. What are some of the trends that are developing in executive compensation? And what are you telling your clients about those? And does that advice tend to vary based on the industry or the size of the company or things like that. It's always fact specific, obviously, but are there particular considerations depending on the size of the company or the industry that you're seeing emerge here? There definitely are differences. Um, and I'll just touch on that briefly before I answer about the trends. Um, we find that that larger public companies get more scrutiny from external investors and proxy advisory firms, and therefore um, really need to understand the, the committee members and management really need to understand how their decisions and actions will be viewed externally. But larger companies also have a greater ability to engage with their shareholders. Those large shareholders are more interested in talking to the larger companies, yeah. smaller companies. So they really have um, an opportunity to, to talk and engage with shareholders, which helps form their governance and compensation practices. And in today's environment, they're not waiting to have an issue or a negative say on pay vote to do that. They're doing it proactively and trying to get ahead of it. Whereas 
smaller companies are not necessarily going to get the attention of these shareholders. They might not have the ability to do the shareholder engagement. And therefore, they, they really have to rely on their disclosure and their seeing yeah. explaining why they do what they do and um, what is the, the rationale and support for that. So that really, um, one of the things, one of the trends or one of the areas that we're helping a lot of, a lot of our clients with is how to navigate this post-COVID uncertain environment, economic environment, and the market volatility that we're seeing, because that really impacts the compensation programs in terms of retention and motivation. Goal setting is becoming more challenging. So you have programs out there that um, may be set in the beginning of a year and about half a year into it, you already know you're not going to meet it. So that doesn't yeah. really help with uh, motivation. So we help our clients think through what is the best way to balance attraction and retention, but also being shareholder friendly and aligning with pay and performance. And so we we need to think that we think that through with them so that when they do have this disclosure or the shareholder engagement, they get the support that they need around that. I'd say one of the other trends, and I know you guys talk about this a lot in general, is the focus on uh, ESG. And that's really a much broader uh, topic than just compensation committees, but it has impacted the comp committee in two ways. And the first is really the oversight of human capital management, which includes mm -hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion, pay equity. And some companies have gone as far as adjusting their committee charters to formally address these areas. Um, have it be part of their meeting discussions. And then other companies are going a step further and saying, we have these ESG priorities, should we be including them in our compensation plan? So there's a lot of discussions mm -hmm. around ESG in, in the comp committee, um, but it's really still a very much evolving area. And as far as the discussions in terms of you know, executive compensation and including ESG goals, I would imagine that that really does vary company by company. And it definitely is different between large, mid and small cap, right? Yeah, it, it really does vary. And it's been an interesting journey from the time that companies have been thinking about this. I would say early on, there was a sense that we have to include ESG in our plans, right? That was the sentiment. And companies were saying, well, what, which part of the ESG are we going to include or, and where are we going to include it and, and which measure? Um, and so what we saw was a lot of companies, especially the larger companies, including primarily human capital measures in their short-term plans with a very low, low weighting, right? Um, and typically it was a qualitative assessment. But I'm hearing more and more comp committees saying, these are long-term goals. Uh, we're still fleshing out our ESG strategy. Let's take a minute and, and before we put it into a plan and we're potentially paying for unintended outcomes, let's really just have this strategy. Let's disclose it and be transparent to our investors, but not necessarily put it in an incentive plan. So I think while initially there was a thought that almost every company would have a measure, now it's more, let's get the measures right and then decide if it's important to put them in a plan. 
So in this current regulatory environment, you're seeing companies pull back a little bit more on incorporating ESG into metrics than pushing forward with that, or does it really just vary? It it does vary. Um, What I'm seeing is there isn't this, uh, companies that did not include ESG in their incentive plans yet, but were maybe thinking about it, are still thinking about it. They're they're not taking the next step um, to doing that because they're really trying to make sure that the measures that they do have in their incentive plans are the ones that support the overall strategy and not just adding a measure because there's an increased focus on it externally. Yeah, and it seems like that external pressure has lightened up a little bit among some large investors and asset managers. And it's smart to make sure that you get the data right. ESG is still, I mean, it feels like we've been talking about it forever, but it's still so new that, you know, it's important to be able to collect the data and have the accurate data before you take that next step and tie the compensation to it. Cause you want to make sure, like you said, Kelly, that you're paying for the outcomes that you actually want and that it's tied to the strategy. Absolutely. And and showing that by including these measures in our plans, we are further supporting overall value creation, right? That, that's the ultimate goal. And so how, how does that play out? And it's, it's still evolving. I don't think it's going to go away in terms of the disclosure, the transparency, the policies, um, just how it's used in executive compensation will continue to evolve. Are you seeing for companies that do incorporate ESG into plans or are thinking that they might be heading in that direction. Are you seeing any changes in terms of whether that's um, just like a discretionary factor or a modifier or some part of a formula? Any any trends there that seem to be emerging? In our research, the majority of companies that do use it are using it in a just more discretionary manner. So even if it's 5% of the total annual incentive, it's more um, a subjective assessment of how you did on those factors. And it could be DE&I, or it could just be a more general category like human capital or safety or customer satisfaction. We're seeing more of that than having it be very formulaic with specific numeric targets. I have seen um, a little bit more interest in the modifier concept, Liz, and Part of that is, you know, let's get our financial performance right. So, and then if we meet that, we can adjust up or down based on on the ESG factor. So I have heard a little bit more interest on that, but I wouldn't say it's a a trend yet. Yeah. Well, thank you for diving into that topic with us. (laughs) Uh, And then this last question is one that we ask all of our corporate governance trailblazer guests. What do you think women in the corporate governance field can add to the current conversation on the role of corporations? Yeah, I mean, I think um, women can and have added a lot. It really goes back to um, this focus on diversity and, and having women on boards and women in senior management, because I believe we provide a different perspective. Um, there's more focus on issues such as well-being, Uh, work-life balance, the value of hybrid work. And I think that adds to the conversation. So I think it's important that we continue to have um, diversity both at the management and at the board level. I'd also say 
from my own experience at CAP, I believe that women play a, a big role in mentoring new women coming into the workforce. So we have um, the Women of CAP is our employee resource group. And we meet to talk about things like how to advance or advocate for yourself in your career, how to be a trusted brand to gain flexibility. And I have found that the younger women in our company find it really valuable because it's important to have a role model. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I was very fortunate uh, growing up in the exec comp field um, to have many women role models and also an amazing mentor that, you know, showed me the path forward. And I, I think it's important that all companies continue to think about that and that women support other women and, and show them that there are ways to get there. Mentorship is crucial, being a mentor and also being a mentee. Absolutely. Yeah. And that brings it back full circle to what you were saying earlier too, Kelly, about the heightened importance these days about human capital oversight and public comp committee, even if big public companies are having a bigger role in that. So great answer. I love it. Um, Thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us for this episode of Women Governance Trailblazers. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Please subscribe on whatever platform you use for podcasts. And of course, we would love if you would rate us while you're there. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Liz and Courtney. Thank you.